to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest is Neil Partron. He's a freelance writer and consultant on the Gulf and wider Middle East, and the lead contributor to the book Saudi Foreign Policy, Conflict and Cooperation, published by I.B. Torres. You can find his blogs at neilpartrick.blog. Our conversation today focuses on the complex, often tense and always fascinating relationship of the Gulf states and Iran. Neil, let me begin by asking you about the relationship between the two big regional players, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Looking back over several decades, can we describe it as a checkered one? Yes, we can. I mean, if we take it back to what, on the face of it, were fellow monarchies before the Iranian Revolution in 78-79, things were difficult then. And the prospect of British withdrawal uh, from the late 1960s caused a lot of concern amongst the Gulf Arab states, uh, including Saudi Arabia, who tried to persuade it to do otherwise. They weren't necessarily convinced that the United States would step into the breach in the way that they hoped, and they were very wary about the Shah's ambition, and the immediate pressure that appeared to be put after the British withdrawal onto Bahrain was seen as some evidence for that. In terms of what's happened since the Iranian Revolution, it's continued to be checkered. Broadly speaking, it's been difficult. I mean, the most obvious point, in a sense, throughout much of the 1980s, the Gulf Arab states were largely on the opposite side to Iran, uh, assisting, for various reasons, Saddam Hussein's Iraq. To bring things a bit more up to date, there appeared to be something of a common interest and Iranian cooperation with uh, Western efforts to get Iraq out of Kuwait in 1991. And the period of Mohammad Khatami's rule in Iran as president, although in many ways frustrating the Saudis and others because of his relative powerlessness, did see a stepping up of diplomatic engagement. And at the fag end of his rule, um, through the personal relationship of former President Rafsanjani and de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, then Crown Prince Abdullah, there was an internal security agreement, which may not have been that substantive, but showed a willingness at least to try and offset Uh, tensions between the two countries. And even over Lebanon, which has often been a fraught area of contested interest between Iran and Saudi Arabia in particular, around 2007 there were efforts to call down then what appeared to be the potential for an outbreak of a civil war. Things obviously have been very difficult since Ahmadinejad came to power um, in the uh, mid-noughties, and in many sense the Saudis have felt that the relationship has despite what I just mentioned over attempts to calm things down in Lebanon um, in 2007, the Saudis have felt that there's been uh, a stepping up of internal interference in itself or in uh, its close ally Bahrain, and indeed the Iranians have felt the same thing in places like Iranian Baluchistan. So yes, checkered, but mostly I would say difficult since 1979. The um, GCC feud with Qatar on one side and the UAE and the Saudis on the other How useful is that to Iran, and conversely, how damaging to the security of the Gulf states? I think the importance of this internal GCC feud is often overstated. Yes, it's useful for Iran, for 
Gulf Arab states that they are at best suspicious of to seem to be in a semi-permanent state of division, but some aspects of this are not new. Uh, Qatar was always quite friendly to Iran. It had its own reasons for being so, most obviously uh, the shared uh, authority over the northern field. And I think that's the perspective we should see it in. The GCC has always been limited, and I think this is underlying the limited basis of its institutional cooperation. Um, the division of the GCC is so acute that they even find it difficult now, because of the blockade and the political suspicions, to cooperate even over something as fundamental as coping with the pandemic. And so in that sense, I think the Iran factor in the GCC crisis is one of political exploitation rather than one of great strategic advantage for the Iranians. There is that shared gas field which you mentioned between the Iranians and Qatar. Does that not cause some anxiety with the Saudis? Well, I think it, it's obviously by definition, ever since its development, uh, been an area of concern, but at the same time, an understandable one. I don't think there's any kind of naivety uh, on the part of the Saudis or the Emiratis or others that in that sense, there's bound to be some cooperation. There's shared authority over a shared field uh, rich in hydrocarbon resources. It underlines, I suppose, the suspicion that they would have about Qatar, and of course have long had. I don't think it necessarily prefigures any profound shift beyond what we've already seen. Now, in your blog on relations between the Arabs and Iran, you wrote uh, that was quite an intriguing uh, statement. The, the roads to Baghdad or Damascus run through Tehran. I wonder if you could unpick that uh, a little bit for our listeners. Yes, I mean, it's obviously a nod uh, to the old Arab nationalist cliche, the road to Jerusalem. It's the stuff of rhetoric in many senses. So I was, in a sense, buying into the notion um, that the uh, the road to to better relations, um, in this case, rather than uh, tensions uh, with key Arab neighbours and Baghdad and Damascus being, uh, previously at least, uh, key Arab national actors and key uh, Arab states uh, of great influence and weight, would in this case run through Iran. It's, it's a perverse notion in a way, but and it, it's not trying to say um, that quite literally you necessarily have to go to Iran in order to try and improve your relationship, let's say if you're Saudi Arabia, uh, with Iraq or Syria. But Iran has a stranglehold in many ways uh, over those two key Arab states, Iraq and Syria. It's obviously present on the ground. It's enormously influential over political decision-making. And if one thinks about the way that the Saudis have in different ways sought to improve relations with Iraq and took some time to actually re-establish diplomatic relations, um, there's always been a limit to what they can do because of the principal Iranian influence. Financial influence is one thing, uh, more limited now, of course, because of the pandemic, but the Saudis and Gulf Arab states are in a better position, obviously, than Iran because of um, the impact that the pandemic has had on oil prices and because of other factors. But the, the leverage that Iran will have on these key relations, these key Arab relations, when there's talk about trying to renew the Arab front, makes it the key arbiter. So beyond, beyond the former slogans, this is actual substance. And the Emiratis, if you like, are a, a partial exception to this rule, in as much as they renewed full diplomatic relations with the Syrians before they then engaged 
last year in formal terms uh, with the Iranians to try and uh, improve that relationship. But in many senses, uh, you know, the Emiratis improving relations with the Syrians would have been done very much with the Iranians in mind. So emphasizing, if you like, the idea that it's all about uh, the Iranian, in effect, stranglehold um, over those two key Arab states coming back into Arab leverage. It sounds from what you're saying that in this situation, in uh, Tehran has the upper hand because of the stranglehold that you just uh, mentioned on uh, Iraq and Syria. Yes, it does. I mean, one factor offsetting that, um, as I also mentioned, is, of course, the pandemic. But, of course, that is affecting everybody. So whilst it, whilst it creates a degree of desperation in Iraq because of uh, how rife the pandemic, in, in Iran, sorry, because of how rife, uh, and in Iraq, but um, in this case talking about Iran, how rife that pandemic is and the impact of related collapsing oil prices and, of course, previously existing American-led sanctions is one factor that to some extent uh, weakens the Iranian position. But at the same time, it's a factor, the pandemic and low oil prices, that is affecting uh, all key actors. Um, and therefore, the old cliché about real politique, you know, Saudi leverage through money, is significantly undermined as it faces um, quite acute fiscal pressures and unemployment pressures of its own. One small exception, though, also thinking about this, to perhaps lessen the idea of a stranglehold, but certainly major Iranian weight, is the, um, I think, barely reported, actually, uh, recent renewal of the American waiver uh, of Iraqi-Iranian sanctions relief, allowing trade against the um, American attempt to enforce tight sanctions across that border and renewing it, I think, for 90 days rather than the normal 30 days, when expectations among some had been that it would actually not renew the waiver at all. I think that's done to partly assist the new Iraqi government, but it's also a measure of Iranian need as well. And theoretically, it's something that could be built upon by the Iranians and by the Americans uh, as a basis for trying to at least offset and minimize tension between them, which is, which is what I think it is principally about. Now, you mentioned uh, uh, the Americans, uh, so I'll, I'll return to your blog. Uh, a, a comment by a UAE, UAE-based analyst that the U.S. is fatigued of the region and the Gulf states are fatigued of the U.S. Do you think that is largely the case? And if it is, how, broadly speaking, is that playing out? I think it's... A caricature and one that reflects the rhetoric that sometimes is expressed, semi-officially at least, on either side. But I don't think it reflects most of the facts. Um, I mean, there's an exasperation, perhaps that's a better word, especially amongst some of the Gulf Arab states uh, with US behaviour and US unpredictability. And this has become more compounded under the Trump administration and it's an exasperation that's felt even amongst Gulf Arab states like Saudi Arabia and the Emirates that in principle are more, more comfortable with Trump than with his immediate predecessor, for example. And clearly um, there has for some time now, uh, traceable all the way back to uh, the Clinton administration in some ways, certainly uh, in the aftermath of the Iraq invasion under George Bush Jr., a fatiguing or a desire, at least on the Americans' part, that the Gulf Arab states do more 
not just financially, as Donald Trump often emphasizes, but do more in practical and military security terms to assist their own security. But the fact is that the Americans, whilst they're signaling a greater interest in other parts of the world and signaling a desire to uh, reduce their primary role, certainly in active war fighting in the Gulf region, they are currently, uh, due to a recent build-up in Saudi Arabia, principally, uh, they are currently uh, having a major presence in the region with American bases, access rights, uh, pre-positioning of equipment and bilateral defence agreements, of course, um, with all of the GCC countries except Saudi Arabia, but practical defence agreements that come from defence sales and other forms of cooperation. Clearly there are limitations to those defence understandings and some of that has been seen in recent times. But for all the unpredictability and for all the exasperation, I think that American presence is obviously proven to be significant. And when the Saudis took the lead in a way that the Obama administration was not comfortable with in Yemen, uh, it still requires significant US and indeed British support to make that military operation possible. Two recent events underlined the volatility of the region, the attack on Aramco in September and the January assassinations of the IRGC's Qasem Salamani and the Iraqi head of Qatab Hezbollah, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis. How do you view those two events and what do they tell us? Well, I think the attack on the Aramco facilities certainly underlined for the Saudis what have been a growing understanding that the perceived traditional commitment to Saudi uh, territorial security and indeed to regime security was no longer there. I think the events of the Iranian revolution had partly uh, underlined that in terms of regime security, uh, as indeed had the Arab uprisings of 2011. But of course this was soon offset after the fact by the um, inflow of some planned and additional uh, defence kit troops and indeed air defences, which of course had already proven uh, inadequate. So it raises concerns about the American commitment for the Saudis and indeed about some kit capabilities. And there was very strong language inside Saudi Arabia, semi-officially, through aspects of the Saudi media about it. And it even prompted, and I don't want to overstate this, but I found it interesting because I happened to be in Saudi Arabia just after the attacks on Al-Khok and Khores. And there were those who would talk off the record, but quite well-connected academics and others, about the fears it had created of American inaction, encouraging the notion that we need to take, or at least consider, resuming ideas of greater regional dialogue, not excluding the Americans, but the implication being very much to include the Iranians and indeed other actors. When, of course, the Iranians put that idea forward to exploit the attacks, they were very much rebuffed by the Saudis uh, more strongly than any other Gulf Arab state. I mean, since then, of course, there's been much emphasis on, on the sheer number of American troops, greatest number since 2003 and the invasion of Iraq in Saudi Arabia, very much against the trend of what was happening after that, uh, the height of that war. And I think the attack on Soleimani, the murder of Soleimani uh, and others in January, I mean, whilst it was primarily ultimately a misguided American action that focused primarily, I think, on the vulnerability perceived of American troops in Iraq, was in some senses also an afterthought in terms of Saudi Arabia, 
of saying, you know, we are still very capable. But of course, it raised Saudi and Emirati concerns very much and a desire not on the Saudi side to publicly engage uh, with the Iranians, unlike the Emiratis, but to underline the dangers, as they saw it, of, in a sense, overreaction by the Americans. So it, I think the, the, ouch, the upshot of much of this has been a greater nervousness in terms of uh, the Saudi position, but also underlining that it really doesn't have any other key options. The Emiratis are able to engage engage uh, with the Iranians, but for the Saudis, um, the Saudis look at this, unfortunately, in many ways, as to some extent of a, of a zero-sum calculation, with Yemen as a possible partial exception to this. And it, those attacks underline frustration uh, with the American role, but also a difficulty, really, in many senses, of finding any other way through. Um, and I think this, in some senses, um, is where we are on Yemen as well. I mean, we can come to this. Well, let, let, us, let us bring in Yemen, yes, because I think you, you have suggested that the Saudi vulnerability, the, the sense that it has now, may force them into a compromise with Iran and that Yemen is the obvious place to start that process. Why Yemen? Well, I think most obviously because it's Saudi Arabia's only direct and active war uh, being conducted in what it's perhaps semi-offensively regarded as its own backyard. It is a, it wasn't ironically, of course, before, but it is now and has been ever since the war began, uh, very much a national security problem for Saudi Arabia, um, as well as a perceived issue of wider regional competition with Iran, traditionally viewed, as I said, in this unhelpful zero-sum way. But because of um, the increased vulnerability, paradoxically, because of what Saudi Arabia has done for the last five years or so in Yemen, um, they need to find some way out. And indeed, periodically, I mean, since the war's been conducted, certainly from 2016, they've sought dialogue with the Houthi and have sought ways of obviously making a direct understanding and not enhancing the perceived uh, Iranian advantage by seeking an agreement with Iran to facilitate agreement over Yemen. The problem is, of course, that whilst it's possible that out of sheer necessity, despite something of this zero-sum calculation, um, that they may find a way to go beyond the current ostensible ceasefire, um, which they're very much, uh, formally speaking, wanting to extend, um, talk of non-belligerence with the Iranian-linked Houthi with Ansarullah is something that uh, may not be very durable uh, because obviously from the Houthis point of view it's been stated quite overtly um, that the sustainability of any kind of ceasefire uh, must relate to at least lifting the blockade of Hodeida and therefore to wider peace talks throughout the country and of course with Hodeida being an issue in terms of supplies to the Houthi uh, attempts to police that through the blockade and the assistance of American allies to Saudi and other efforts, those supplies coming from Iran, then the issue is so caught up in Yemen's own need for a more durable arrangement and also, therefore, in that context, Iranian leverage. But I still think the Saudis, if they're yet clear on what form some limited agreement could take, if it was remotely feasible, to build beyond the current ceasefire, uh, recognize that they need it. 
it's become so acute in terms of security, it's become so acute in terms of the sheer cost uh, emphasised by the pandemic as Saudi has serious financial problems going forward, um, potentially, and certainly um, in the short to medium term has political tensions to some extent, unspoken admittedly, uh, around the degree of domestic fiscal restraint that it's going to have to find some way of engaging more substantively with the Houthi. Uh, it may be some form of non-belligerence arrangement, possibly, and that may be very fragile and perhaps not durable, but I think it's going to need to try and explore that. But as I say, it becomes so difficult because how much of that non-belligerence would relate to issues like Hodeida, uh, an issue which, after all, allies like the Americans and the British would also have a key interest in, just as they've been keen on the Saudis talking to the Houthi as well. But it's an interesting thought, and, and perhaps we'll conclude on that, uh, that, that, that the road to peace in Yemen may indeed uh, lie through Riyadh and Tehran. Yes, uh, that, I mean, where I would differ from that assumption, though, is the issue of peace. I think, I mean, while ultimately it's also a matter, obviously, of Yemeni internal arrangements and possibly formal or otherwise uh, in terms of power sharing, and a role for a central government that inevitably must, and Saudi Arabia accepts this, include the Houthi. And it would be an issue of power distribution throughout the country and resource distribution. Um, there, the need for two of the principal actors, they're not the only external actors, of course, in Yemen, for Saudi Arabia uh, and Iran to, to be part of the understanding is crucial. But of course it also speaks to the differences of emphasis between the Saudi and the Emiratis as well. Um, the Emiratis have not only just engaged with the Iranians for their own reasons and in terms of trying to offset Gulf tensions, but they've also been interested in using Yemen as a signal to Iran um, that they're not interested in an ongoing active war with an Iranian ally, the Houthi. And of course the Emiratis are very much focused on their own southern aspirations, so any, ultimately any arrangement in Yemen is liable to need an Emirati contribution as well as its fostered southern secessionist ambitions. Another problem for Saudi Arabia because uh, it wants to pull out of active involvement in Yemen, it might be able to engage in a limited way with the Houthi to secure this, but it also has some troops on the ground in, in Aden and in Mahra. Um, in southern territories, uh, and extra extricating itself from that requires arrangements uh, that are reliable with the Emiratis, um, who have not proven to be wholly on the same page, at least in terms of Emiratis' southern ambitions. So it is a matter, you're right, for Riyadh and uh, Tehran, but it's also very complicated by local aspirations, some of which are being uh, promoted by the Emiratis and others. Neil, thank you very much. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Neil Partrick. He's a freelance writer and consultant on the Gulf and wider Middle East, and the lead contributor to the book Saudi Foreign Policy, Conflict and Cooperation, published by I.B. Torres. You can find his blogs at neilpartrick.blog. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.